American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I am Gordon Jump. No, no. And I'm the ghost of Gordon Jump. Is he dead? He died of uh, fibrosis. Fibrosis? What's it? Fibro. He died of pulmonary fibrosis. This is the American History Podcast that brings you all the nostalgic, shocking, and Pleasant things from years gone by, and we do it year by year. And we also talk about pop culture, and we remember the songs and the movies and the Gordons. Gordon Jump, Gordon Lightfoot, Gordon Jump again. Yeah, you can't name anymore. All the Gordons. Um, and Gordon t- from Sesame Street. Tonight we are talking about 1974. This is basically a Gordon cast. No, it's 1974. Oh, 1974. Yeah, we started 1974 last episode, which was episode 37, I think. Uh, Something like that. Is that, that right? Something like and that. And I think we're about to start episode 38, y'all. Crazy. We're getting into these episodes. We're just putting them out. We don't. We've we've stopped caring if anybody listens, and we stopped yep. marketing. And we don't care. We're just doing them. That's right. We're just gonna see how many we can do before we die, yep. or before Gordon Jump, Gordon Lightfoot comes back. Yeah. And, okay. And kills Gordon Jump's ghost. Okay. So but what's the we, first? We left off in February. Yeah. Nineteen seventy-four. We didn't get very far in the first. We episode. sure didn't. February. Uh, well, Jesus. we went a little bit farther out and then came back because your story, oh, my story was. Yeah. We jumped and jumped some places, and then we just stopped. Like mm-hmm. we, we were just so into the story of uh, Patty Hearst, which was such a crazy story. Yep. Which I had always wanted to know, and now I know. But let's jump into this because if you don't know, now you know. Um, Okay. We've got to get through this fast if we're going to get because we're still only in February. And I have this crazy story about Hiru Onada. Do you know who that is? I do. Hiru? 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 Onada? But, yes. You know I, about him? I, J- Japanese soldier? Yeah, I do know this story, but go ahead and tell it because it's really good. Okay. Then now, now you know this story from another podcast, right? I do, yep. Now, um, in my defense, I did not know this was on another podcast when I did this research, so I didn't wasn't planning on plagiarizing a podcast and i still have not heard what podcast this is on so i'm just going to tell you the story okay. uh, that i found on popculture.us uh from 1974 and then i did some research and found some wikipedia stuff uh and here's what happened i'm gonna put it in a nutshell yep Haru onada was a japanese soldier that was stranded on an island for 30 years after world war ii ended yes i'm December 26, 1944, he was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines, and he was ordered to do all he could do to hamper enemy attacks on the island, including destroying the airstrip and the pier at the harbor. Onada's orders also stated that under no circumstances was he to surrender or take his own life. No circumstances. Yeah. 
When he landed on the island, he joined forces with a group of Japanese soldiers who had been sent there previously. The officers in the group outranked Onada and prevented him from carrying out his assignment, which made it easier for the U.S. and Philippines Commonwealth forces to take the island when they landed on February 28th of 1945. And within a short time of the landing, all but Onada and three other soldiers had either died or surrendered. Onada, who had been promoted to lieutenant, ordered the men to take to the hills. Yep. So they ran up into the hills. And uh, so he continued his, ca- his campaign as a Japanese holdout, living in the mountains with three other soldiers. And all they ate was bananas. And I can't pronounce any of their names. Shimada, Kinshiki, Akatsu, Yuichi Akatsu. I guess I said that pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Anyway, during his stay, he and his companions, they, they would carry out guerrilla activities and engage in several shootouts with the police. Yep. For 30 years they did this. And 30 they, years. They would... Ki- they would um, steal cows from the villagers they would steal like a cow and they would take it up and they would just boil it over and over again they would just boil it and eat it that would be their milk and their no they would eat it they wouldn't milk it no they'd eat it and they just ate a boiled cow but they bought like they would have to reboil the meat all the time and they they ate that and bananas and that was it i love bananas so it's a good way to live for 30 years in the mountains uh and then so Several times uh, there had been leaflet drops of, you know, mm-hmm. trying to find soldiers that were missing and hi- hiding to let them know, hey, the war was over. Japan had surrendered. Uh, every time they saw the leaflets, they concluded that the leaflet was allied propaganda. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of 1945, leaflets were dropped by air with a surrender order printed on them from General Tomoyuki Yamashita of the 14th Area Army. And they had been hiding over a year at this point, and this leaflet was the only evidence they had that the war was over. Onada's group looked very closely at the leaflet to determine whether it was genuine, and they decided it was not. Yep. Um, and little by little, the other um, soldiers with him would either come out and surrender. In 1949, uh, Yuichi Akatsu surrendered to Filipino forces. Uh, in 1952, letters and family pictures were dropped from aircraft, urging the rest of them to surrender. Like his fa- his family wrote letters. Yeah, to him. yeah, yeah, family letters, pictures, and the three soldiers concluded that this was a trick. Yep. Shimada was shot in the leg during a shootout with local fishermen in June 1953, and Onada nursed him back to health. On May 7, 1954, Shimada was finally killed by a shot fired by a search party looking for the men. And Kazuka was killed by two shots fired by local police on October 19th of 1972 when he and Onada, as part of their grill activities, were burning rice that had been collected by farmers. Onada was now alone. Yep. And now here on February 20th, 1974, Onada met a Japanese man, Norio Suzuki, who was traveling around the world looking for Lieutenant Onada. Hmm. He was also looking for a wild panda and the ab- abominable snowman. Oh, <laughs> jeez. Yeah. In, I'm going to go search for the uh, abominable snowman and wild pandas. No, no, in, uh, it was in that order. He wanted to find Lieutenant Onada, a oh. wild panda, and then the abominable snowman. I'm having trouble saying abominable, abominable snowman. Suzuki found Onada after four days of searching. Onada described this moment in a 2010 interview. Onada, Onada, Onada and Suzuki became friends, but Onada still refused to surrender, saying that he was waiting for orders from a superior officer. 
Suzuki returned to Japan with photographs of himself and Onada as proof of their encounter, and the Japanese government located Onada's commanding officer, <laughs> Major Yoshima Tanag Taniguchi, yep. who had since become a bookseller. He flew to Lubang, where on March 9, 1974, he finally met with Onada and fulfilled the promise made in 1944, whatever happens, we'll come back for you, by issuing him the orders. Oh, man. Onada was thus relieved of his duty, and he surrendered. He turned over his sword, his functioning Arisaka Type 99 rifle, 500 round, rounds of ammunition, and several hand grenades. You know, he still had all that stuff. I know. As well as the dagger his mother had given him in 1944 to kill himself with with if he was captured. <laughs> yeah, that was like a thing where the in the Japanese army, they you had to... Um, Kill yourself if you got captured. Yeah. That was like... But I love that his mother gave him the dagger to kill himself. Yeah. Yeah. But they... they it was You'd be dishonored if you didn't kill yourself when you, if you got captured and you lived through it. You'd come back and you'd be like dishonored or whatever. Well, as exciting as this one was, there was a guy who held out even longer. Oh, really? Teruo Nakamura was arrested in December of 1974 in Indonesia. Oh, my God. So yep. Another guy did the same thing. Yep. Jeez. Yep. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's pretty I crazy. I like that story. That's a crazy story that that happened. Poor guy. Like, I forgot that guy. And they just kept dropping those leaflets, and every time they'd look at it, they drew, they dropped, like, newspapers and stuff, and yeah, every time they'd, they'd look at it, and they're like, thought it was oh, the Americans are getting very crafty. <laughs> they're getting very sneaky, <laughs> but they didn't fool us again. They've invented Photoshop. Yeah. And have made fake pictures of my family. That's right. Yeah. All Very right. sneaky, sis. That's right. <laughs> to, to quote uh, <laughs> Connect Four commercials yeah. yep. from last Oh, episode. we forgot to look up commercials. We were going to do that. Oh, Shit. yeah. We'll have to do it next time. All right. So what's next? Well, the next is a song, and I, I'm trying to look it up because I know that you have never heard of this. Because I've never heard. Maybe well, you will. Well, yeah, I will. Hold on. Okay. On March 2nd, 1974, Terry Jacks takes over the Billboard number one spot. Yeah. Do you know who that is? No. Um, this is an English-language adaptation of the song Les Moribondes by Belgian singer-songwriter Jacques Brel. Still don't know it. <laughs> Terry Jacks recorded this song in Vancouver in 1973 with his then-wife Susan Jacks. Oh, Terry's a man. Yep. Okay. They made the decision to record the song when the Beach Boys, who had recorded a version with Terry Jacks producing, decided to abandon their recording. Okay. Though the song enjoyed contemporary success, modern criticism had tended to be more critical of Jack's rewriting of the original song, considering it overly sentimentalized. Oh. Now do you know what song it is? No. It's called Seasons in the Sun. We had we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. Is it that? Oh, I think so. You do know We what. had joy, we had fun, we Trees. had seasons in the sun. Yeah. Yep, I know this song. This guy's got a hair helmet in the video. Doesn't it sound like a 60s song? Yeah, it totally does. It, it, like, if I heard that, I would not think it was 1974 that that came out. Um. This is commonly held up as uh, one of the worst pop songs ever recorded, and it's ranked five in a CNN poll in 2006 of all the worst songs. Really? I don't think it's that bad. 
Yeah, I don't think that's. I don't think bad. it's that. Big. I mean, there's some really there's some real shitty songs. Real like shitty songs. Everything Barbara Streisand's done, and everything from the 1980s. The that, 80s that were wasn't shitty. The, you know, it was ballads. Shitty, shitty 80s. 80s were shitty, 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 shitty. And then Wednesday, March 20th, 1974. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, a gentleman by the name of Ian Ball? No. Well, let me tell you a story. Okay. As Princess Anne and Mark Phillips were returning to Buckingham Palace on March 20th, 1974, from a charity event on Paul Mall, their Princess 4 car was forced to stop on the mall by a Ford Escort. The driver of the Escort, Ian Ball, jumped out and began firing a pistol. Inspector James Beaton, Anne's personal police officer, responded by getting out of the car in order to shield her and to attempt to disarm Ball. Beaton's firearm, a Walther PPK, jammed, and he was shot by the assailant, as was Ann's chauffeur, Alex Callender, when he tried to disarm Ball. Brian McConnell, a nearby tabloid journalist, also intervened and was shot in the chest. Oh, did he die? Uh, probably. Ball approached Ann's car and told her of his kidnapping plan, which was to hold her for ransom, the sum, the sum given by varying sources as... Two million or three million pounds, which he claimed he intended to give to the National Health Services. Ball then directed Anne to get out of the car, to which he replied, "Which she replied, not bloody likely." That was awful. <laughs> not bloody, not bloody likely. And reportedly, Jeez. briefly considered hitting Ball. Eventually, she exited the other side of the limousine, as had her lady-in-waiting, Rowena Brassy. Now, this is where it gets good. A passing pedestrian, a mm. former boxer named Ron Russell. Punched Ball in the back of the head God. and then led Anne away from the scene. At that point, police constable Michael Hills happened upon the situation. He, too, was shot by Ball, but not before he could call for police backup. Detective Constable Peter Edmonds, who had been nearby, answered and gave chase, finally arresting Ball. Hmm. Be Beaton, Hills, Calendar, and McConnell were hospitalized and all recovered from their wounds. For his defense of Prince Anne, Beaton was awarded the George Cross by the the, it was awarded the George Cross by the Queen, who was visiting Indonesia when the incident occurred. Oh, that George Cross. Yeah, the George Cross. I love that. I've always wanted a George Cross. Mm -hmm. Hill, Hills and Russell were awarded the George Medal, and Callender, McConnell, and Edmonds were awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal. Anne later visited Beaton in hospital, in hospital and thanked him for his assistance. She also spoke about the event on TV to Parkinson in 1974, saying she was scrupulously polite to her would-be kidnapper and she thought it would be silly to be rude at that stage ball uh -huh. ball pled guilty to a murder and kidnapping he was detained under the mental health act as of january 2011 at broadmoor the incident was the closest in modern times that any individual has come to kidnapping a member of the royal family oh yeah i guess you don't think about that yeah like if think of how much money happened. if they did kidnap somebody from the royal family how much money they would get how much money they could they would ask for you mean yeah and get from ransom like they would just pay it because everyone i don't know I, I don't know does that ever work i don't know maybe every time you hear about a, a kidnapping and a ransom then they, they get caught because really? every time even um i mean think remember, about it give me back my son what are you talking about that's that mel gibson one where he's like give me back my son it's all they always get caught because how, how do you drop the money? How do you drop the money, and then? Well, John Bonnet Ramsey, that that guy didn't get caught. 
that they paid up. They right? never paid, didn't they? No. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm sure you. I'm sure you'll cover one where it, they got paid. I'm pretty sure they all get caught. I don't think. Well, that Shawshank works. Redemption. How do you? How do you? That wasn't a spend a ransom ransom money. What about when Gordon Jump kidnapped Dudley? All right, on we're moving strokes. on. We're moving on now. <laughs> I guess he just raped Dudley. Yeah. Raping Dudley's the name of my band. Sunday, March 23rd, 1974, Cher takes over the Billboard number one spot. Yes. With a terrible murder ballad. What? Do you know this murder ballad? What is it? This song became Cher's third solo U.S. number one hit and her last until Believe in My... This is her last one? Yeah, until Believe, 25 years later. Yeah, what is it? Dark Lady? Hmm. That one I don't know. It's real shitty. Is it? Yeah, that's it. Of course, I don't think there's. Oh boy, gay guys are gonna kill me for this. I know but. you're gonna get some gay <laughs> I know, guys it, mad it, at you. As if the gay guys don't already hate me because of the Barbara Streisand. Yeah. But there's nothing that Cher's ever done that's good. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh my god. Sorry, everyone. Oh my god, you're in trouble. I don't know. Moonstruck. Maybe that was good. Here you guys see this video too. All of her videos were from the shared sunny hour. Oh. That's why gay guys love her, though. She's like a drag queen. Look yeah, at she does dressed. dress like a drag queen. Yeah. She's basically licking that microphone. Yeah, look at she's wearing, like, oh, she looks like a drag queen. Um. Do you remember that song at all? No. I didn't remember that either. Um, no memory of that. Anyway, it's terrible. But it's about a murder. If you listen to the words, it's about a murder a woman who murders people, I think. Oh, okay. And then that only lasted. I didn't know murder ballad was a big genre. Uh, apparently it is, and I'm surprised you're not into it because you love murders. I know. I know. You know murders and death. I mean, all you right, love that. Christ. You should start getting into that. You should only listen Quit to yelling. that. Quit yelling. And then March 30th, John Denver pushed her off the number one spot on the Billboard charts. That prick. With sunshine on my shoulders makes, makes me, me happy. That's a sweet song. It is. You can't not love that. And I John, mean, John Denver was probably something wrong with him, but. What? Well, you what know. Do you mean? I don't know. There probably is. There probably was something wrong with him. We just like don't what? know it. What? Like you think. Like, I don't know. Are these allegations? Are you making There's allegations? There's no wild allegations going on. I'm just saying. Usually that's the case. Like he was coked up? Something, yeah. Or like he killed probably. someone? Or he beat his wife or something? Yeah, some, one of oh, those. No, I hope not. He, I was, he reminds me of Peter Scolari. <laughs> They're both like just little. Peter Scolari's a little better looking than John Denver. What? John Denver was not an attractive man. Yeah, he kind of looked like, um, I'm not sure. Just kind of yeah. like a frog or something? Or like yeah, a, he looked like a frog. Like a little frog. He did. And then that hairdo did not do him any favors. The hair helmet. Well, the 70s was not friendly to anything. But he he could sing good folk songs. He was just a little baby. I think he, uh, hopefully, let's just hope he didn't Let's just hope he didn't do anything. I don't think he did anything wrong. He he wrote this song in Minnesota at the time he calls late winter, early spring. It was a dreary, dreary day, gray Mm -hmm. and slushy. The snow was melting and it was too cold to go outside and have fun. But, man, he was ready for spring. You want to get outdoors again so bad, and, and, you, and you're waiting for that sun to shine. You remember how sometimes just the sun itself can make you feel good. 
And in that very melancholy frame of mind, I wrote Sunshine on My Shoulders. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy. Sunshine in my eyes will make me cry. Yeah, that he. Rem- I always think of Kermit the Frog when I think of yeah. John Denver. Because I think he, he sang, was on the Muppet Show all yeah. the time. Well, and and then Carly Rae Jepsen remade this song in two thousand nine. Who's so. that? Carly Rae Jepsen. Yeah, you know she's the one who sings. Um, um, I don't know. Some she sang that. It was a real popular pop song around that time. Um, our daughter loves it. Um, Carly Rae Jepsen. That's that. Um, starts on my toes and a crinkle my nose. Oh, okay. No, wait, no, that's somebody else. Uh, she sings. Who it's cares? something about a boy, and it's like I like it. Um, Carly Rae Jepsen. Who cares? Oh, man, Moving it's on. killing me. She sings some pop song that was like really. Oh, uh, call me maybe. Oh, she sang I that. I just met you and you're crazy, but yeah. I don't give a shit. Call me maybe. Okay. Yeah. That's what it is. Um, that was a really good podcast. And those are the right exact. There. Those are exact same words. Those are the exact words. I'm sure. All right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she re- redid "Sunshine on My Shoulders." I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, according to Wikipedia. And then on Monday, April first. Mm-hmm. 1974, the local residents of Sitka, Alaska, woke to their nearby dormant volcano, Mount Edgecombe, billowing out black smoke. When a Coast Guard pilot came closer to investigate, he found 70 tires burning and the words, April Fool, spray painted into the snow. Oh, my God. That's uh, awful for the environment. Oliver, <laughs> Oliver Bicar had, had lit nearly 100 tires on fire. Hashtag April Fools. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's terrible. That's a funny joke. That's though. not a funny joke. It's it let's is. Let's destroy our. Let's pollute all the air for years to come just for an April Fool's joke. Just so you know, it's going down in history as the greatest April Fool's prank of all time. It is not. It has. Look it up. Google it. I'm not googling it. Google it. I'm not. Google it. I'm not doing it. Take your shirt off and Google. I will not. Google yourself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What else? And then April 2nd, the very next day after April Fool's Day, mm-hmm. um, it was the 1974 Oscars. Okay. And um, the host, do you know who David Niven is? Yes. You do? British I, guy with a pencil-thin mustache? Yeah. How do you know him? I just know who he is, like, from probably, like, shit like that. Oh, jeez. I don't have to lose your temper. I think but... he, he was on, like, Love Boat sometimes or something. Well, at... at, at this Oscar, this year at the Oscar Awards, um, Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro were the only two actors to win Oscars for playing the same character. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. Godfather, they mm-hmm. both played the same. Um, um, Godfather one and two, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, this was at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in L.A. Okay. The ceremonies were presided over by Burt Reynolds, Diana Ross, John Huston, and David Niven. The Sting won seven awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, but. While David Niven was at the Oscar podium live on national television, a streaker. streaker. That's right. Robert Opal ran by. That's where I know David Niven from. Yep, and David quipped, Isn't it fascinating to think that the only laugh that man will ever get is for stripping and showing his shortcomings? <laughs> uh, saying that guy's got a real small penis. Right, right. Get it? Shortcomings? Mm-hmm. Short I do penis, get it. Small wiener. Anyway, yeah, so uh, 
I watched that on. You can watch it on yeah. YouTube, and you can't only see the guy for like a quick second because they don't have. You know, they didn't have. Were like you trying a, to look at his junk? Yeah, I was trying to see how big his junk was, it's just to see if mine's normal or not. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> You're weird. That's that's the only that's the only reason I have that subscription to uh, Playgirl. Uh, Playgirl magazine is just to see if my junk's normal. That's oh, that's what you've always told me at least. Yeah, that's why, and that's I only stare at the centerfolds for you know thirty minutes, forty minutes each it's month. A little, seems a little excessive. Just uh, to make sure my junk's cool, isn't that you know that's what you do as a grown man? And then Sunday, Check April sixth, nineteen seventy four. Blue Suede takes over the number one spot on the Billboard charts. You know who Blue Suede is? No. You don't know who Blue Suede is? No. You know the song for sure. Okay. What is it? Here's my hint to you. Okay. Um, uh, Viking fans sing this every time Adam, not, Adam Thielen scores a touchdown. That's not a okay, hint I to sing me. It every time Adam Thielen, except I change the words to hooked on a Thielen. Adam Thielen's a great receiver. Hooked on a feeling? Yeah. You I, know that song? I can't believe in you're in love with Weird. me. Mm-hmm. Ah, hooked on a feeling. That's a great song. Yep. Um, I really love that song. You still, it, it definitely holds up. Um, ooga chaka, ooga, ooga. Ooga chaka, ooga, ooga, ooga chaka. Yeah. Um, so that was different than the original. The original one was done by B.J. Thomas, okay, um, <clears throat> which had a sitar in it and probably sucked. A sitar? Yeah. That's an interesting choice. And so Blue Suede added <clears throat> the Uga, Uga, Uga Chaka, mm-hmm. uh, which was real famous in Sweden at the time, and they made their singer Bjorn Skiff mm-hmm. uh, do that, make that sound. Okay. Although that's not the original place that, Uga Chaka Uga was. It was used by British musician Jonathan King in his 1971 version of the song, apparently. I guess. I don't know. There you go. All right. And then Sunday, April 7th, 1974, it wasn't until Andy Fearless Brown retired that every goalie in the NHL wore the recommended face mask. Oh. Andrew, Andy Brown, he, he was a Canadian goalie. Okay. And he played with the Detroit Red Wings and the Pittsburgh Penguins. This is going to be a bad story if, if he if he like his face made it, was removed. Made no. it possible for or made it mandatory to have a face mask. No, so no, yeah, uh, he played for the Penguins and uh, and several teams in the minor leagues. But um, in 1973 and 74, he incurred 60 minutes in penalties which was then the NHL record for penalty minutes in a season by a goaltender. He was the last goalie to play without a mask in the NHL when he retired. And then he retired mm-hmm. on April 7, 1974. And after 63 loss to the Atlanta Flames, he continued to play without a mask throughout his three seasons in the WHA, which is a, a, diff- a World Hockey Association, which isn't the NHL. His insistence on playing barefaced earned him the nickname Fearless. Oh, so I thought you meant... No, so they implemented a rule. He was but the they first didn't. one. No, no, he was the last one that could not wear one. But it was like, all you guys already play, you don't we don't, you don't have to change what you do. Oh, but I thought you meant nobody here, nobody wore them until something happened with this no, no. guy. They had to start wearing them. They made a rule, but then they, they did, let the they, old guys still continue. And then when he, So when he retired, nobody else, no goalies. Oh, so more. nothing happened to his face. No, but I bet his face was jacked up because he probably stuff happened to him all the time. Yeah. 
Well, that's not that good of a story. That's kind of dumb. Yeah. Maybe I'll cut it. April 13th, 1974, Elton John takes over the Billboard number one spot. Yeah. B-b-b-Benny and the Jets. Ugh, I don't care for that Benny. song. Benny. 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 Can you name everyone who covered that song? No. There's what? a shitload of people. Can you name anyone? Mm, Barry Manilow cover it? I don't think so. I don't know who all did then. Well, do you want to know the best person who covered George it? George Michael? No. Okay. What, who? Uh, Bismarcky. He did? Bismarcky covered on a, in a, on a Beastie Boys album. Okay. But 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 Benny, <laughs> it's hilarious to hear him sing that, by the way. I bet it is. Um, this song first appeared on the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album in 1973, and it was one of Elton John's most popular songs, mm-hmm. and he performed it during Live Aid. Um the track is spelled B-E-N-N-Y on the sleeve of the single, uh, but the track listing of the album and on the album vinyl, it's B-E-N-N-I-E. The New York Jets, Jets used a parody of the song called Vinny and the Jets during quarterback Vinny Testaverde's first run with the team from 98 to 2003. That was inevitable. Yep. Um, Mary J. Blige sampled the melody for her song Deep Inside. And when Blige asked Elton John for permission to sample the piano line, he ended up agreeing to actually play the line on the track instead. Sweet. Yeah. He likes Mary J. Blige, apparently. Um, Cher performed the song in a duet on the Cher Show with Elton John on piano in 1975. Okay. Christina Aguilera performed the song at Fashion Rocks with Elton John in 2006. 2013, Lady Gaga and Elton John performed the song on Lady Gaga and the Muppets Holiday Spectacular. I'm glad we didn't have to watch that. <laughs> yeah. I actually want to. In 2014, Miguel with Wale performed this song on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road 40th Anniversary Celebration. Wasn't she just recently in a movie that everybody said she was pretty good in? Lady Gaga? Yeah. Maybe. You don't know her. She was in, she was probably in uh, Titanic 2. Oh, Muppets gonna be mad. Yeah, I don't know what she is. It's probably something recent, which we you and yeah, I haven't seen recent. a movie in the theater since the 90s. Yeah. Um, this song was also sampled by a rap group called A Tribe Called Quest. Have you ever heard of that yeah. group? They're the great one of the greatest rap groups ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a song called Solid Wall of Sound, where the, the part where it goes, Solid Wall of Sound, Solid Wall of Sound. All right. Anyway, um, I think Elton John... Performed with them somewhere too. Like I guess I know something. Anyway, that's there's a bunch of other stuff about it too. But but who yeah. cares? Who cares? But 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 Benny and the Jets. What's next? The magician was on. I think that's left over from last episode. You probably have a story, and I talked about the magician. Remember oh, that with uh, yeah Bill Bixby. You're, yeah, you're. You did talk about that. The guy you had a crush on I when never, you were in high school? never had a crush on Bill Bixby. Yeah, you did. All through high school, you had pictures of Bill Bixby with hearts <laughs> all over it everywhere. There was no even pictures of Bill Bixby be around and when I was in high school. Oh, well, that could be changed now. We could find some pictures of Bill Bixby. We're not doing that. Shirtless ones, maybe? No Put way. hearts around them and hang them up in your nope. boudoir. Nope. Bill Bixby's hot. My wife's in love with Bill Bixby. Saturday, April twentieth, nineteen seventy four, twenty, MFSB and the th- and three the three degrees take over the Billboard charts. I have never heard of that. Yeah, it's an instrumental, but you have heard of that. 
Is it? No, that's um. Oh, what is that? Is that? That's a TV show, right? No, that's the eighties. What you're doing? No, that's that's a. That's Miami Vice. No, it's not from a TV show. It was a song. No, I think what you're doing. Oh, there. No, it's it's got lyrics. That's right. Oh yeah, I know this. This is rocking. Yeah, so that was this essentially a um, essentially a um, the classic example of the Philadelphia soul genre. It was written by Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff as a theme for the American musical television program Soul Train. Oh. That's why you know that song, which specialized in African American musical performers. Uh, the single was released on the Philadelphia International Label. It was the first television theme song to reach number one on the Billboard Hot. I think 100. I had in the '90s. I had like four double CD disco compilations. Yeah, and, that was on it. Yeah, and this is arguably the first disco song to reach that position. Yeah. So uh, there are only two vocal parts to the song: a passage close to the beginning during which the three degrees sing "People All Over the World," and the chorus over the fade out. Let's get it on, and it's time to get down. Oh, I didn't remember words in it at all. The words people over the world not heard in the original version. The version heard on Soul Train also had the series title sung over the first four notes of the melody. Soul Train. Soul Train. Hmm. Um, Soul Train was on Sunday, Sunday like early afternoon. I remember that being on. Do you, do you know what MFSB stands for? Mm. The band's called MFSB no. and the Three Degrees. I do not. Uh, it stands for Mother, Father, Sister, Brother. Oh, well, there you go. T-Sop is the name of the song. It's called The Sounds of Philadelphia. On Monday, April 22nd, 1974, Mama Cass Elliott collapsed in the Burbank, California television studio of The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson, immediately before her scheduled appearance on the show. She did not choke on a ham sandwich. She did not. She was treated at a hospital and released. Oh, so she didn't die yet. No, she never died. She's still alive. No, she did. She's immortal. And then Saturday... She she haunted Dan Aykroyd's house. She haunted it? According to him. Really? He believes in like... Ghosts and stuff? Ghosts and aliens, hardcore. Really? Yeah. We should have him on the podcast. Really? Think he'll be on here? Yeah, he probably... He could be our first guest. He'd probably do it. Or our third guest. Um, Fourth guest, maybe? Yeah. He, um... She... She was not that fat. I know. You know what I mean? You look at her now, like now you look at it like, in my head, I mean, you hear people talk about it, like she was morbidly obese, just yeah. the fattest thing in the world. She was not. She wasn't that fat. Yeah. She wasn't thin. Well, people were was, a lot smaller in general yeah, I guess back generally then. Yeah, in the 70s, so people were more skinny. If you scaled it down a little bit, the whole population, yeah. she probably seemed like that. Yeah, she looks like every woman I know. Hey. Every woman in my family. Hey. Sorry, just kidding. Um, May 4th, 1974, Grand Funk climbs to the top of the Billboard charts with another song. Grand Funk. Yep. This one is a cover version of a different song. Oh, what is it? The decision to play this song and record this came about after guitarist Mark Farner was heard whistling the song in the studio. Okay. 
you really think, if I can't get a song when you're actually singing it because you're so off tune, how in the world... I can world... whistle on tune. No. Okay, let me try whistle again. Don't. No, stop it. <laughs> you got it? No. Stop it. <laughs> One more time. No more. No more times. What is it? Oh, the locomotion? Oh, you like my humming on my scat. Oh, my God. Yeah, the grand funk version of the song featured guitars. I never liked that song. heavy drums. Even the rock version? Yeah, none of them. Yeah, it's it's not. It's a stupid song. Yeah. You gotta sway your now. And it gets every middle-aged person at a wedding to go around the entire place with their hands on the person in front of their shoulders you know? yeah you like that you don't even like the tiffany version <laughs> no sure why would i like the tiffany version i don't know she was in playboy that is that means nothing to me <laughs> yeah right you're ridiculous yeah you, you you're right we're moving on you wish you were tiffany no what do you think tiffany's doing right now probably petting her cat really could like, be. is that a euphemism? Yeah. Oh. oh. <laughs> what, what do you have to base that on? Is she just sitting at home masturbating on a Saturday night? Could, you don't know. Saturday, May 4th, that same day that Grand Funk took over the Billboard charts, Cannonade won the Kentucky Derby. Why are we talking about the Kentucky Derby again? Kentucky Derby is we, your no, favorite thing we, now. We, Tiffany's at home masturbating Saturday, May 18th, 1974. Stop it. Now. Stop Ray it. Stevens takes over the Billboard charts now. Ray Stevens was on the Billboard charts? Yeah, in number one spot. What was the song? What do you think? Everything is Beautiful? No, I think you told me that. The Streak? Yeah. Oh, my streak. God. Because it was based on that streak. guy on the Oscars. Oh, streaking. that's why he made, he wrote it. Well, not just that guy. It was A lot of people were streaking yeah, at this, and this time. Yeah, it was a big um, thing. Yeah, and there's a video. There's a video for this. And this is kind of like a country is novelty a cartoon? song. It's no, it's him live. He's like at a grocery store and he's Oh, I thought watching. it was a country. I thought it was a cartoon of a naked guy with a big long beard. Oh, I think there is a cartoon in there too, maybe. Do you know how the song goes? Yeah, sorta. Sing it. Well, they call him the streak. That's all I know. I totally remember Ray Stevens now from all kinds of commercials and stuff, but I never think I never I didn't think he was an actual artist. I thought he was like just from stupid hee haw. No, he is. That's what I remember. Yeah, it's. Um, I I think I, I thought it was on hee haw. I thought thought I just Maybe. thought it was a hee haw. Might have been. Probably was. And then Tuesday, June fourth, nineteen seventy four, the Cleveland Indians hosted Ten Cent Beer Night. Oh God! Did you hear about this? Yes. You did. Mm-hmm. You know about this? Mm-hmm. Well, you know about everything. I know the. I won't listen to the dollop a lot. Is from a podcast also. Yeah. Okay. Well. The Cleveland Indians hosted 10-cent beer night, which resulted in a forfeit against the Texas Rangers due to rowdy drunk fans. Yep. The idea behind the promotion was to attract more fans to the game by offering 12 fluid-ounce cups of 3.2 beer for just 10 cents each. Oh, my God. What a stupid idea. A substantial discount on the regular price of 65 cents. 
but really not that big. It was only 65 cents anyway, with a limit of six beers per purchase, but with no limit on the number of purchases made during the game. Well, and they didn't have, they didn't cut it off. During the game, fans became heavily intoxicated, culminating yeah. in a riot in the ninth inning, which caused the game to be forfeited due to, the, due to the crowd's uncontrollable rowdiness and because the game could not be resumed in a timely manner. But I did read about this, and they said, they said, um, it, they've done, they did dime beers before, uh, or nickel beers. They used to do nickel beers all the time. There was not a problem. Oh, it was um, just this one time. Yeah, so they said that. Um, but they got, I mean, they got on the field and stuff. Yeah, they got crazy. It got, drunk. it got, it's really a funny story if you go into it because of how bananas it got. Yeah, that's all I really got to. But I think they, I can't, now I can't remember what they said that they chalked it up to, why they thought this one, this one was a little different uh, and that everybody got really hammered Jeez. as opposed to other times when they did. Well, I know they said something like like now they cut off, you can't have any more after a certain inning. Seventh inning, yeah. And, and they used and then to not. Thing with NFL. Yeah, they used to never cut anything. I remember when they implemented all that. It was usually somebody got hit by something and they, <laughs> they implemented it. Yeah. Um, somebody threw something. But, um, yeah, they previously held promotions without incident, beginning with Nickel Beer Day in 1971. However, yeah, here's a bench-clearing brawl in the team's last meeting one week earlier at Arlington Stadium in Texas left some Indians fans harboring a grudge against the Rangers. Oh, that'll do so it. So there's a little bit more added to that. I knew there was something else, but I couldn't remember what it was. But Saturday, June 8, 1974, Paul McCartney and the Wings take over the number one spot on the Billboard charts. A bit of something number shitty. One. It is Band on the Run. Ugh. Band on the run, band on the run. Yeah, it's yeah. an awful song. It's stupid. All of the wings are terrible. Yeah, wings are. It's not the wings. It's just wings. I know the wings. It's not the wings. The wings. He's like an old man. You know how they got. Oh, they name. quit blasting the wings. The kids are listening to those. You know those. how the the wings got their name. The wings. Bill McCartney and the wings. Bill McCartney, Paul McCartney and the wings. You know it's how they got their name. Not the wings. It's just wings. Yeah, but you know how they got the name the wings. <laughs> it's just wings. Yeah, they went down a on a girl on her period. All right. <laughs> that was worth it. The wings. All right. Enough. That's how Detroit Red Wings Red got their wings. name. That's no, how Detroit not. did, yeah. Uh-huh. No, it is yeah, not. It is. Liar. The owner did, yeah. That's what they did. Yeah, that's what and then he did. came the next day and said, that's why now I know what yep. we can name the ball game. Yeah, he told everybody, I earned my Red Wings, everybody. Gross. Yeah, it's gross and awful. Uh, June fifth, nineteen seventy-four. Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods. Okay. They're the new number one spot singers. People. And what did they sing, honey? You don't know? No. God, you call yourself a nineteen seventy-four historian. I don't. I don't call myself that. Billy, don't be a hero. Oh. It's a country. Oh, then I don't. Maybe I don't know. Country-ish song. You don't know this? I might not. Um, Billy. Billy, don't you be a hero. That's a, is it how Billy, it goes? Billy, no. don't you be yeah, you're a making hero. Stuff up now. Because you're not anywhere. And I can't find you. No, I don't know this song either. It's about a war. Oh, okay. It's about somebody don't don't go off. It's like a wife singing to a husband. Don't be a hero. Stay home with me. It sounds like a man singing, doesn't it? It is a man singing. 
Oh, I thought he was singing Make Me Your Wife. It's no, pretty they, shitty. They look like the, the Von Erics. That's a pretty crappy song. Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods um, is, co- is composed by two British songwriters. It's about somebody going off to war. And some listeners thought it was Vietnam, but it's actually they didn't ever, actually ever say okay. whatever. It could be the Civil War. I don't know. Whatever. With the piccolos at the beginning. Yeah, fucking piccolos. And it's about a woman who doesn't want her boyfriend to go off in the war and all that crap. Okay. Uh, anyway, but. This inspired, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. But a lot of times, one of those guys will say, Billy, don't be a hero to people in the, throughout the thing. Oh, hey, Billy, yeah. don't be a hero. It's based on the song. Oh, okay. And Alf says it in Alf. Okay. The different pop culture, it was inspired by that song, apparently. When people hear people say, don't be a hero. And then Tuesday, June 25th, 1974, after several decades. Mm-hmm. God, that Billy, don't be a hero was from June 15th all the way to June 28th. Um, on Tuesday, June 25th, 1974, after several decades of deciding how to do it, in June, the first UPC scanner was installed at a Marsh's supermarket in Troy, Ohio. Oh, in Ohio, huh? Yep. The first product to have a barcode included was a packet of Wrigley's gum. Really? It was the first barcode ever scanned on that day. You never think about that. Like, what was the very first According to ro- RoadsideAmerica.com, it was... March's supermarket in Troy, Ohio. Huh. Yep. Now everything we own, including pretty much us, has a barcode. Well, that 67-cent pack of gum is on display at the Smithsonian. Is it? Yep. Sweet. Yep. So somebody bought it, and then they forced them to give them the wrapper? Apparently. Give me that back. I guess so. But if you go to that supermarket, a framed mayoral proclamation commemorating the event is on the inside wall near, near the exit. The very this is the site of the very first UPC symbol scan. Yep, and I people go there. People line up to get line, the picture taken line with up, selfies. I'm sure. and yep, get their get their dick out. Get their dicks out <laughs> <laughs> next to it. Take a picture of me and my dick next to this thing. Yeah, I put barcode on my dick. Scan it. I'm in Troy, Ohio. I'm surprised that. Home of the first ever barcode. I'm going to get my dick out. I'm surprised we don't have barcodes on our dicks. Well, you don't have a dick, but I have one on my dick. Oh, you do? Yeah, I got a vasectomy. They, they install a barcode every time you get a vasectomy. Oh. Some old lady was holding my you wiener. You need to tell everybody you had a vasectomy. Everyone, I have a vasectomy. There was an old woman holding my wiener the whole time. It's weird. Did she, have, she didn't have gloves on either. That and was she, the weird part. Yeah, she wouldn't make eye contact with me. It was really weird. I kept trying to. You kept trying to look like, <laughs> big eye contact with her. Yeah, I kept like winking at her and like <laughs> like making little kissy faces at her, but she wasn't. Responding. Oh, you are such a sleaze ball. Why? She was holding my wiener. What are you supposed to do? It's just like natural reaction. June twenty ninth, seventy four. Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. Takes over the number one spot on the Billboard charts of America. With what? Sundown. Sundown, you better take care. If I find you've been creeping around my back stairs. I know that song. Yeah, I've only known one song by Gordon Lightfoot, and it was the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah. And I thought, I'll admit this, I thought Gordon Lightfoot was black. I did. <laughs> well, you know, I know why. Why? 
Because of Gordon on Sesame Street. He <laughs> didn't know it's exactly why. <laughs> Maybe that's why. It's totally why, because I thought the same thing. Really? That's why you thought that? I, I, I think just saw a picture of when I looked up this song, and it was like a, a whiter than white. I think it's guy. because it like in the 70s, a guy named Gordon, we're all, everybody our age is going to say, I guess. They're black and they're bald. You probably thought he was bald no, too. No, didn't I didn't think he was bald. I thought he had hair. Oh, really? I just think the song, the Edmund Fitzgerald, is the only song I ever heard. I just pictured Gordon from Sesame Street anytime I hear Gordon Lightfoot's name. Gordon. What about Gordon Jump? He raped Dudley. I don't think about Gordon Jump. So. Um. What's next? Gordon Lightfoot wrote that song because he thought his girlfriend was out with her friends one night at a bar while he was home writing songs. And he said, I wonder what she's doing with her friends at that bar. And then he wrote that song, Sundown. Where's my true love tonight? What is my true love doing? Okay. And then he shaved the lice out of his beard. <laughs> and then on June 29, 1974, while on tour in Canada with a Marinsky Ballet, Barishnikov defected, re- oh. requesting a political asylum in Toronto. Did he get it? And joined the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. He also announced to the dance world that he would not go back to the USSR. He My went, Aunt yep. Jane was in love with Baryshnikov. Really? She had posters of him in her room. Really? Yep. <laughs> Why? I don't know. She loved ballet. But she was in love with him. Yeah, he came to the United States later on. Who cares? Saturday, July 6, 1974, the Hughes Corporation takes over the number one spot on the, the Billboard. The Hughes Corporation? Tr- the Hughes Corporation. H-U-E-S. Have you ever heard of this? No. Rock the boat. Rock the boat, don't rock the boat, baby. Rock, rock the, the boat. boat, don't tip the boat over. Rock the boat. That's a good song, but I never knew it was somebody named the Hughes Corporation. I'd like to know where you, you got, got the notion. That's a that's a super disco-y song. Yeah, I love that song. Uh, and you hear it everywhere. It's like in tons of commercials and things now. Mm-hmm. Um. um it's one of the earliest disco songs. Some proclaim it to be the first disco song to hit number one, while others give that distinct distinction to Love's theme. I, love I thought you said orchestra. it was something in, from 1970. Yeah. Well, that the one. The disco song. That's that what somebody said. One by Michael Jackson. Well, you know, it's all just what people say. People are stupid. Well, I'd like to know where. Who are the people? Who are these know? people? Just people. You know, the, the world is filled with fucking people. Gross, no, but gross people. I mean, humans are just vermin. People could say anything. If you really think about it, Earth is probably just like some dude's head, and we're the lice. Yeah. Human are, humans are the lice. Could be. You're obsessed with lice. You're tonight. lice. What? I can't get the lice out of my beard. July thirteenth, nineteen seventy-four. George McRae then knocks the U.S. Corporation off the Billboard charts with "Rock Your Baby." Rock your baby. Rock your baby. I don't know that. Rock Your Baby. Do you know who George McRae is? No. Well, this was written and produced by Harry Wayne Casey and Richard Finch of Casey and the Sunshine Band. Oh. And the backing track for the record was recorded in 45 minutes as a demo and featured guitarist Jerome Smith of Casey and the Sunshine Band with Casey on keyboards and Finch on bass and drums. It was also one of the first records to use a drum machine. Oh. The track was not originally intended for McRae, but he happened to be in the studio, added a vocal, and the resulting combination of infectious rhythm and falsetto vocals made it a hit. Now I got to hear it. Um, John Lennon actually admitted that he um, 
was inspired this song inspired him to uh record the song whatever gets you through the night really yep and abba Mm -hmm. said this song also inspired them to write dancing queen we'll see if you can hear any of that in it yeah Um, Oh, yeah, I know this. It sounds like Casey and the Sunshine Band. Dancing queen, young and sweet. Oh, whatever gets yeah. you through the night. That's a pretty good song. See that. Yeah, that's not bad. Anyway, but that how lucky is that guy? He just happened to be sitting there in the studio. And yeah. Like, hey, you want to do a song? Okay. And then this one, this next one is great. You're going to love this story. Okay. You probably have already heard this, too, but... Um, Monday, July 15th, 1974. Yeah. I got to get ready for this one. Okay. You're going to love this one. This one's good. Okay. It's fucking crazy. Never knew this happened. Do you know who Christine Chubbuck is? No. Monday, July 15th, 1974. Christine Chubbuck, a newscaster, committed suicide during a live broadcast. Jeez, another one? Yeah, but this time she's a newscaster. Her last words were, In keeping with Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts, and in living color, you're going to see another first. Attempted suicide. Oh, my God. And then what'd she do? According to the 1974 Sally Quinn article in the Washington Post, Chubbuck had an unrequited crush on co-worker George Peter Ryan. She baked him a cake for his birthday and sought his romantic attention, only to find out he was already involved with sports reporter Andrea Kirby. Ooh. Kirby had been the co-worker closest to Chubbuck, but she was offered a new job in Baltimore, which had further depressed Chubbuck. Chubbuck's lack of a romantic partner was considered partner was considered a tangent. Chubbuck's a lack tangent. Of, What's that supposed to mean? Chubbuck's lack of a romantic partner was considered a tangent of her desperate need to have close friends. Though co-workers said she tended to be brusque and defensive whenever they made friendly gestures toward her. She was self-depreciating, criticized herself constantly, and rejecting, and rejected any compliments others paid her. She sounds like a real fun gal to be around. Her brother recalled that she displayed many symptoms of bipolar disorder, which was not That's generally recognized like. in the psychiatric community at the time of her death. A week before her suicide, she told Rob Smith, the night news editor, that she had bought a gun and joked about killing herself on air. Smith later stated that he did not respond to what she thought was Chubbuck's sick attempt at humor and changed the subject. Yeah. On the morning of July 15, 1974, she confused co-workers, co-workers by claiming she had to read a newscast to open Suncoast Digest, something she had never done before. That morning's talk show guest waited across the studio while Chubbuck sat at the news anchor desk. During the first eight minutes of her program, Chubbuck covered three national news stories and then a shooting from the previous day at local restaurant Beef and Bottle at the Sarasota Bradenton Airport. Okay. The film reel of the restaurant shooting had jammed and would not run, so Chubbuck shrugged it off and said on camera, in keeping with Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts and living color, you're going to see another first. Attempted suicide. She drew the revolver and shot herself behind her right ear. Chubbuck fell forward violently, and the technical director... Faded the broadcast rapidly to black. Let me guess. You looked this up. I actually did look it up, but um, it's there's no video. Like, somebody oh. has the video. It's not available. There's, like, still shots and stuff. But the station quickly ran a standard public service announcement and then a movie. 
<laughs> Some television viewers. Viewer, and now Abbott and Costello in yeah. the goofy I wonder haunted what movie. house. Yeah, I should look that up. Some television viewers call the police, while others call the station to inquire if the shooting was staged. After the shooting, news director Mike Simmons found the papers from which Chubbuck had been reading her newscast containing. Mike Simmons. I know a Mike Simmons. After the shooting, news director Mike Simmons, not the Mike Simmons who deep throat bananas. Okay. And he found the papers from which she had been reading contained a complete script of her program, including not only the shooting, but also a third person account to be read by whichever staff member took over the broadcast after the incident. God, she sounds like she's off her tits, doesn't he she? He said her script called for her condition to be listed as critical. Wow. And she was hot. She was? She's hot, too. She's pretty cute. Yeah. Have you ever she seen? Sounds a, like she was crazy. Have you ever seen a news lady who's not shit. hot? Yes. Name one. I don't know. I've seen. They're them. all hot. They're all super hot. All of them. Okay. Um. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's that is nuts. That is crazy. And that same day, that's the same day that mm-hmm. Mama Cass Elliot dismissed the passing out incident from previous. So remember, she passed out yeah. Johnny Carson. Yeah. This that same day, uh, she was on the Mike Douglas show. Mm-hmm. And she had dismissed her passing out um, as just simple exhaustion. Her and her appearance on that episode of the Mike Douglas Show turned out to be her last for mm-hmm. television. And yeah. I watched this interview yeah. with Mike Douglas, and uh, there's some little kid there that keeps interrupting her, but she's uh, and she talks quite a bit about tasty cakes and how much she likes. There's tasty some cakes. little kid that keeps interrupting her. Yeah, there's. You know, it's a talk show, so there's like two other guests that were there before her. Yeah, there's some little kid. Oh. And he's, I don't know if he's from. What Some band or something or what? Um, and she keeps talking about what she likes to eat. They were no. probably, that's probably all they asked her about. No, they did ask her about it. Is I understand you really like tasty cakes. And she was like, oh, yeah, I love tasty cakes. That's kind of rude to bring up... <laughs> Some snack cake that she likes. Hey, fatty. I know. <laughs> you love those tasty cakes? I bet they cakes? don't ask that of anybody else. Yeah, well, it was something to do with tasty cakes. Like, she specifically... Asked for them, and they don't. You can't get them out west or something. But they, she found a place that I've had them. I've never even heard of Tasty stare. Cake. Tasty Cake. Oh, I guess I have a seen Tasty those. Cake and Orange Juice and a Bubble Yum Pack. I don't think they had them in Missouri. It's yeah, the East they Coast. Never, they didn't have them in Missouri. But I've seen them here. Yeah, they're here. Yeah. It's the South. Yeah, I, I didn't get them till I was here. I don't think. Or the East Coast. East Coast, I guess. They yeah. Them. Okay. They had them in Philly because Will Smith rapped about them. Oh. Okay. DJ Jazz Jeff and Fresh Prince. Yeah. I got it. Tasty Cake and Orange Juice and a Bubble Yum Pack. Look up those lyrics and then find what song that is and report it back to me on Twitter. And then listen to that song over and over again. <laughs> Friday, July 26, 1974. Do you have anything yeah, on that day? I do. I think you might. On. <clears throat> oh, bless you. Oh, my God. What happened? On July 26, 1974, yeah. a teenage girl and her dog discovered a badly decomposed corpse of a young woman in the dunes of Provincetown, a coastal resort community on Cape Cod. Gross. They found that body the same time Vincent Price and Lucille Ball were on Dinah's Place? Yes. Dinah Shore's show? Yes. And the same time Jimmy Walker and Meredith McRae were on the $10,000 Pyramid? Yes. And Sale of the Century was on at the same time. She could have been watching that instead of finding dead bodies. Yep. The woman, who eventually was eventually dubbed the Lady of the Dunes, oh. was found lying face down on a blanket nude with a bandana and a pair of jeans beneath her head. Oh. This is a story of the Lady of the Dunes. The Lady of the Dunes. After examining her lifeless body, officials determined the woman was killed by a blow to the head that crushed her skull. She was also nearly decapitated, possibly as a result of strangulation, and her hands had been cut off, making it impossible for law enforcement to get her fingerprints. 
God, wouldn't now if you cut somebody's hands off, wouldn't they just bleed profusely throughout the arms? Well, they probably did. Gross. So, what do you do with those hands? <clears throat> I don't know what happened to them. The authorities also determined she was sexually assaulted with some sort of wooden object after she was murdered. Of course. And they concluded she was probably between the ages of 25 and 30 and was 5 foot 8 and weighed approximately 145 pounds. Oh. In addition to cutting off her hands, someone removed several of the woman's teeth, causing <sighs> people to speculate the Lady of the Dunes may have been killed by James Whitey Bul- Bulger. He just died. Did you hear he? about that? Yeah, in prison. He just Did died. He? He was uh, a notorious mobster involved with an organized crime syndicate in nearby Boston at the time. Boston. Bulger and other members of the Winter Hill Gang reportedly removed their victims' teeth after killing them to make it more difficult for the authorities to identify them. Because at this point, the dental records were the big thing. He was also known to frequent a popular gay bar in Provincetown called the Crone and Anchor. Wait, Whitey Bulger was? Yes. He, really? He was, he was a gay guy? He was big into male prostitutes. Really? Yeah. Oh, well... Good for him. Wait, I don't think he was, I don't know if he was gay or if he just liked to dominate people. Is he the first gay murderer or mobster? mobster? Might have been. Huh. Well, wow. Well, you know, you, ju- you, know? you think you know one mobster, you think you know them all. But boy. So that's don't. one theory is okay. that Whitey Bulger killed her. But we don't know for sure. No. According to Sandra Lee, who wrote a novel based on the case, the Lady of the Dunes may have been a young woman who came to America from Ireland, and it's possible Bulger, an Irish American himself, was grooming her to force her into sex slavery. No. Oh. Lee believes Bulger or one of his cronies may have killed the young woman in Boston around the 4th of July, and they preserved her corpse in a freezer until they dumped her body in the dunes where mm. it, when it was discovered nearly three weeks later. Oh, that's nice. That's While behind nice bars for murdering... Here's another theory. While behind bars for murdering two people, Haddon Clark told a cellmate he killed the woman known as the Lady of the Dunes. Yeah. The convicted murderer, a paranoid schizophrenic, told his fellow inmate of his alternate personality, a woman named Kristen, killed the Lady of the Dunes in 1974, as well as nine-year-old Sarah Pryor in 1985. I don't know. It doesn't seem reliable. Clark, who authorities believe is a serial killer, was a suspect in several other murders. He also showed investigators where he allegedly buried some of his victims. However, officials from Massachusetts searched the places on Cape Cod where Clark indicated he had hid victims' bodies, and they didn't find any evidence to support the convicted killer's claims. While the authorities haven't ruled out Clark as the person responsible for murdering the Lady of the Dunes, the Provincetown police doubt he was involved in the unsolved killing. Another theory... Oh, man, a lot of theories. Yeah, is the Lady of the Dunes is Rory Jean Kessinger, a 24-year-old woman who was arrested during a drug raid in Pembroke, Massachusetts, near the beginning of 1974. Yeah. A few weeks after she was apprehended, Kessinger escaped from the Plymouth County House of Correction and seemingly disappeared. Some to suspect she was murdered, possibly by one of the many criminals the young woman was known to associate with during her short life. Did you say criminals or criminals? I said criminals. Sound like you said criminals. I didn't. I said criminals. <laughs> What's a criminal? Sorry. You asshole. Whoa. Kessinger ran away from home when she was just 15, oh. and she was known to rob banks, use drugs, and went by five different aliases. Five? Do we have those aliases? No. I'd really like to hear mm-hmm. them. So it's is, possible Is one she, of them scrum pastored I think it is. pastored So it's possible she made up a new identity to start over after she broke out of jail. That's flub, flub-gibble. Due to the similarities between the Lady of the Dunes and Kessinger, police completed compared DNA taken from the ad- unidentified woman found in Provincetown and with a sample collected from the escaped inmate's mother. Yeah. To to the surprise of many officials involved in the case, experts determined Kessinger was not the Lady oh. of the Dunes. Oh. 
1987, more than a decade after the Lady of the Dunes was murdered, a young woman in her early 20s claimed that while she was visiting Provincetown, Massachusetts, approximately 15 years earlier, yeah. she saw her father strangle a woman. Oh. Because the young woman lived in Canada at the time, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police passed the information on to Provincetown Police Chief and the Massachusetts State Police. Okay. However, by the time authorities in the U.S. learned about the woman's disturbing allegations, she had moved to Montreal. In 1987, investigators made efforts to locate this woman, but were never able to find her. Do you think she had a bunch of aliases? They also couldn't corroborate the information she provided. Like Womble Carlisle? Could be. In 1987, law enforcement received a call from a Maryland woman who thought the Lady of the Dunes might be her sister who went missing in 1974. According to the woman, she lost touch with her sister after she relocated to Boston the same year the Lady of the Dunes was discovered in Provincetown. This sounds promising. The woman said she hadn't spoken to her sister since 1974, oh. and her missing sibling, like the Lady of the Dunes, had auburn hair. Auburn. According to the Provincetown police chief who received the tip, he told the woman to send him her sister's dental records for comparison, although it's unclear if she complied with his request. But her teeth were missing anyway. Some of them. Not oh, all not of them. all of them? Mm-mm. She had um, it, what looked like expensive, real expensive gold crowns and stuff, and they said it was like New York-style dentist dentistry or something there's a style it was at the time i don't know fancy new york style dentistry fancy new york dentistry oh that's not this crappy boston dentistry yeah it's fancy new york dentistry here using her skull experts have produced images of what the lady of the dunes may have looked like before her death yeah she's hot no in 1979 (laughs) five years after the authorities think she was murdered the first facial reconstruction of the lady of the dunes was created using clay Over the next few decades, other people offered their depictions of the unidentified woman, with most of them bearing little resemblance to one another. So nobody knows what the fuck they're doing or talking about. In May 2010, officials used a CAT scanner to produce an image of her skull, which was in turn used to create yet another reconstruction of the Lady of the Dunes. Sadly, this latest image has failed to reveal the woman's identity. Because someone cut of the young woman's because someone cut off the young woman's hands. Law enforcement were unable to get fingerprints from the Lady of the Dunes. As a result, the police relied heavily on dental records to help them eliminate possible matches. While someone removed many of the young woman's teeth, they left evidence of the expensive dental work the Lady of the Dunes had before she was murdered. Oh, this is the part. Experts found several gold crowns in the woman's mouth, which were at least $5,000 in 1970, a rare luxury for most people at the time. That's fancy. Seizing upon this unique clue to the murder... Seizing upon this unique clue to the murder. To the victim's identity. The Provincetown Police Chief got the case of the Lady of the Dunes featured in dental journals. Law enforcement officers contacted thousands of dentists in an effort to learn the identity of the young woman with multiple gold crowns, and they've ruled out at least 50 possible matches. So they're real desperate, I guess. Yeah, they really want to know who this lady is. On October 19th... It's really for closure. Yeah. That's where they want to find it. On October 19, 1974, three months after the young woman's body was discovered, the Lady of the Dunes was buried in an unmarked grave in St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown, Massachusetts. She was laid to rest with a simple headstone which reads, Unidentified Female Body, Found Race Point Dunes, July 26, 1974. She was buried the same day as Billy Preston took over the billboard charts with nothing from nothing. Nothing Nothing from from nothing nothing. Gotta have something if you're gonna be with me. me. That's a good one. 
According to law enforcement officials, for several years after the Lady of the Dunes was buried in the cemetery, someone who was never identified commemorated the day of the young woman's body was found by placing flowers on her grave. In 2014, Detective Meredith K. Lober of the Provincetown Police Department told the press she was raising money to buy a new casket for the Lady of the Dunes as the unidentified woman's existing metal coffin was disintegrating due to rust. In 1980, the Lady of the Dunes was exhumed so forensic anthropologist Dr. Clyde Snow could create a facial reconstruction using clay. Due to advances in forensic science, the unidentified young woman's remains were exhumed once again in 2000 for scientists to collect DNA from her. Poor lady. Just keep exhuming that mm -hmm. lady. Don't let her rest, man. Officials generated a DNA profile, which they used to sift through tips from people who contacted police claiming they might be related to her. Sadly, while they've ruled out several possible leads with the help of DNA evidence, law enforcement officials still, despite their heroic efforts, haven't been able to find the identity of the Lady of the Dunes. Just leave her alone. Like, nobody's looking for her. Like, nobody's mm -hmm. upset. Then, in 2015... Yikes. ...author Joe Hill, son of writer Stephen King... Oh! Stephen King's got a son. ...proposed another theory about the Lady of the Dunes after watching Steven Spielberg's classic film Jaws. Okay. In the movie's Fourth of July scene, a woman who is similar in appearance to the Lady of the Dunes is what? clearly visible for a few seconds of the film wearing jeans and a blue bandana like the ones discovered under the murder victim's head. What? Much of Jaws was filmed in the summer of 1974 in Martha's Vineyard. Holy which, shit. Which is approximately 100 miles from where the Lady of the Dunes was discovered. So he, what? Hill theorized the two women might be one and the same, which the writer briefly admits is a pretty wild bit of speculation. While I bet she's in that movie. Well, some people, including Hill, find it highly unlikely that the Lady of the Dunes was an extra in a summer blockbuster, the information collected by the writer was passed on to law enforcement officials. Why the hell not? The extra in the exorcist was a murderer. And if you look, you can look up pictures of the Lady of the Dunes, like the bust that they made from clay. Yeah. And um, sketches of what she looked like and then the still from that movie. And it does look like the same person. And they put out a thing like, hey, if you were this woman in this movie, yeah, tell they, us. They tried, they tried to look. The casting directors died. Oh, was Since he murdered? Who was he murdered? He was murdered with his hands cut off. No. Oh. I'm just kidding. He, oh, that's a funny joke. He just died. <laughs> Stop it. Telling somebody he's murdered. He died so hands that they off. can't ask him. And there were so many extras, they didn't have a real tight... Um, Rain on it. Yeah, they didn't keep paperwork and stuff like they do now, You know what I they guess. should do? What they should do is um, see if they can bring him back from the dead to find out. Yeah, that's a good idea. You're you're full of good ideas yeah. all the time. They should resurrect that dude. They yeah, they should. If they you know because if they invented resurrection, that'd be the first thing they would do, so we can find out who that other lady is. Yeah, that's true. So I think is that about an hour? Yeah, I think we're about an hour. I think we're out of time, folks. All right. Um, those of you who've been listening are like ready to move on. You're thinking, gosh, how, how much longer do I have to listen to these idiots that's do right. a podcast? Like, gosh, I'm doing this out of courtesy. Why am stop. I still listening to their stupid podcast? They just won't stop. No, but hey, as long as you listen, we'll keep making them. <laughs> Sorry, that's how it goes. Yeah, it's actually, like actually, even if you don't, deal. even if you don't listen, we're still going to make them. So, all right. Well, thank you for listening. Yeah, well, this is where we left off here in July. Uh, we're in July, the twenty sixth. We'll pick back uh, up, pick at up the, in July, and at we'll the end of July yeah, for episode thirty nine. We're almost up to episode forty. Oh this has gosh. been the second episode of nineteen seventy four. Thank you for listening. As always, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell everybody. 
whose heart can comprehend. And rate, review, subscribe. Send it in a letter, baby. Tell me on the phone. I'm not the type of girl who likes to be alone. All right. I got to go to bed. I'm missing Take it away, Matt Truman, and get out of here, Chuck Berry. Matt Truman, I don't know if you're listening, but I think I love you, dude. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.